Theology Now! Exclamation mark. A podcast brought to you by the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia. The Project on Lived Theology is funded by a generous grant from the Lilly Endowment. I'm your guest host, Ethan Shear, a research fellow at the Project, producer of Theology Now!, and a Ph.D. student in Christian Theology at the University of Virginia. In this, the fourth in an occasional series of podcasts exploring major themes in the project's 22-year history, we will be taking a look at one of the most unsung heroes of lived Christian theology in the 20th century, the journal associated with the Committee of Southern Churchmen, the Catalogite. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan McGregor, author of the fascinating book, Communion of Radicals, The Literary Christian Left in 20th Century America. Dr. McGregor teaches at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. What is the Catalogite? Our interview with Dr. McGregor will help clarify and shed some light on this question, but a brief overview is still in order. A huge thanks is due to Isaac Barnes May, researcher and friend of the project, who has done invaluable work on the Catalogite at the Project on Live Theology. The Catalogite espoused civil rights and Christian social activism during its publication run from 1964 until 1990. The contributors were a diverse group, ranging from Walker Percy, Thomas Merton, Julius Lester, pioneering Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge, lawyer and theologian William Stringfellow, and even French sociologist and theologian Jacques Ellul. The magazine's editor, James Holloway, taught philosophy and religion at Berea College in Kentucky, and collaborated closely with Will D. Campbell, the director of the Committee on Southern Churchmen. Catalogate's politics were radical, but religiously it was a product of crisis theology, and drew heavily from Karl Barth. It was also heavily influenced by the Anabaptist and the Southern Baptist traditions. Despite its editors and many contributors having elite Northeastern educations, the magazine was deeply and self-consciously Southern in its identity, extolling the music and folk culture of the white rural South while lamenting the region's abiding history of racism and violence. Over the course of its 36-year run, contributors to Catalogite addressed many contemporary issues from a Christian perspective, including the war in Vietnam, income inequality, the status of African Americans, the ordination of women, the solidarity movement in Poland, death of God theology, and a host of other topics. As scholar Stephen Miller has written, Holloway and Campbell saw themselves as offering a leftward critique of liberal politics and mainline Christianity. By the 1970s, they were hostile to the idea of Christian involvement in the political sphere, including attempts to tie Christianity to the political left. They positioned themselves 
against liberal Christian activism, which they viewed as an unacceptable form of compromise of their values. Instead, they emphasized the separate and independent nature of the Christian message. To the extent that the periodical had a single coherent vision, it was for an authentic, biblically-based, populist Southern Christianity that could create racial solidarity between blacks and whites. Catalogate celebrated William Faulkner and the Grand Ole Opry. The magazine's cover often depicted scenes like sleeping hogs, church pulpits in the woods, and other romanticized rural southern landscapes. This vision of the writers was never fully realized. Instead, religion became increasingly politically polarized. Evangelicals in 1976 backed Jimmy Carter's presidency, but by the 1980s, Southern white Christianity had become tied with the political right. Despite the failure of this project, the journal still had an important impact. By 1974, it had over 9,000 subscribers, an impressive number for a journal that provided nuanced discussions of European theology. Writing in Catalogate served to connect a widely geographically and denominationally separated group of intellectuals, as well as to provide a forum for up-and-coming voices like theologian Stanley Hauerwas. It offered a vision of a kind of Southern Christianity that was neither social gospel liberal Protestantism or politically conservative evangelicalism, but instead offered a powerful critique of both. With that overview in mind, we now turn to Dr. McGregor. The interview I had with him was dynamic and a lot of fun. We reproduced it here in its entirety. Please enjoy McGregor's key insights into the importance and impact of the Catalogate. Warning, this interview, while incredibly exciting and very dynamic and really informative, also features a little bit of strong language. And so please, listener discretion is advised. Yeah, you missed you miss my quip there. When two people are wrong, it basically constitutes a tradition. I, I did miss sure your quip. Gets on I, tape. I, I'm, glad that, I'm glad you got it on tape. That is a good, that might be the, the title of the episode. There we when go. Two, when two people are wrong with Jonathan and Ethan. Right. You know. Yes. Yeah. We could start our own spinoff podcast. Oh, that, that's, that's right. Just being wrong on podcasts. Um, yeah. I mean, it's basically like most podcasts. That's um, true. That's true. So, yeah. So the other thing that I'm kind of trepidatious about, I guess, is, uh, you know, n- not someone who has any formal training in theology at all, only, only as a as a church member, as a Christian, having, and a general kind of intellectually curious person whose work often intersects with theology, but I don't always know the lay of the land within the guild or, or in the, um, in the field, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I'm coming at things from the literary perspective, and, and I know that can be useful, I think it's probably useful to theologians, but um, at my, when I'm thinking about, like, how am I going to frame you know, the Committee of Southern Churchmen for your audience. 
that might inflect a little bit of my approach. Just, uh, I don't know. Fair warning. That That's okay. I'm I, okay. We're, we're comfortable. I'm comfortable and we're comfortable with, with however you want to frame it for us. And then, okay. and then we can, we can flesh it out. It's no problem. Cool. So, um, we're not going to, I'll, I'll introduce you in the framing device in the episode. So we don't necessarily have to, to kind of have a big formal introduction, sure. but I will say, um, I, I will start with this. Um, uh, Jonathan, why don't you introduce yourself in as few or as many words as you'd like um, <laughs> for, for our listeners here at Theology Now? Sure. So I'm Jonathan McGregor. I'm a lecturer in the writing and reasoning program in the Department of English at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Um, I work on 20th century American literature, religion and politics, uh, specifically interested in leftist writers who are Christians and the, the kind of not hidden, but uh, not always, um, announced tradition of leftist Christian intellectuals in America. Um, yeah, so my book, uh, Communion of Radicals, traces that that came out last year. And um, Dorothy Day, The Catholic Workers, Christian Socialism, uh, Vita Scudder and, and that crew, and then more recognizably literary folks, like I write on T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden, uh, I write about Claude McKay and um, also literary critics like F.O. Matheson. And then what we'll probably be focusing on today, uh, kind of Southern studies is another thing that is one of my, one of my subfields that I interact with a lot. And uh, Southern, Southern Christian radicals who are also writers uh, takes up a good chunk of real estate in the book. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of my, um, obviously that's, I shouldn't say obviously, if you're listening thus far, uh, uh, <laughs> listeners, you know, we're going to talk about that. But um, when I read the book, I, I, uh, I, listeners, I initially found out about Jonathan's name, actually by finding <laughs> his dissertation online, um, yes. which was fun. Uh, I, I, I was like, I looked up at Charles Marsh, I was like, this guy writes about the catalogate. <laughs> Charles, awesome. Charles was like, great. <laughs> Love it. So, and so uh, it was definitely really uh, fascinating as somebody who uh, is a northerner who, while is also a left wing Christian, is just not really aware, you know, of, of that this tradition of southern left left wing Christianity. Yeah. Um, like, like to, to read your book and your dissertation and find uh, um, uh, this really compelling um, tradition of, of thinking was really, really exciting and very exhilarating, particularly as somebody who, you know, will occasionally read like Reinhold Niebuhr and be exhilarated. This is yes, much more yeah. interesting in, in a certain <laughs> sense. Um, Although they they found him very uh, exhilarating, at least the the initial iteration of of this crew, the Fellowship of Southern Churchmen. Reinhold right. Niebuhr was their initial uh, keynote speaker, and he earned the epithet "Judgment Day in Britches" from Scotty Cowan at yeah. that initial meeting because they thought he uh, he really brought the house down. So yeah, good good for them, you know, like good for Reinhold as as somebody who. I enjoy reading. This is a 
silly tangent. I enjoy reading um, Niebuhr up until like 1945, and then you and after, I are the same. And then after that, I'm, I'm like, come on, Reinhold. You know, like, like what are you doing? Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, his. Uh, I love Moral Man and Immoral Society. I do. Too. I love Leaves from the Notebook of a Tame Cynic, but like. After, as soon as you get into like Children of Darkness and Children of Light, he's starting to lose me a mm-hmm. little bit, you know, mm-hmm. so, I don't know. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And I, I but I do like, I, so one of my former professors, Larry Bouchard, who does some Niebuhr stuff, he, he, yeah. he likes both Niebuhrs. He'll, we, I took a class with him on theology of culture and we read um, H. Richard Niebuhr's, um, yeah. uh, you know, Christ and culture. Christ and culture. Yeah um and and i don't I, I don't really read a ton of h richard i uh, he he's you know my background is in public theology and reinhold is such a towering sort of public theology guy whereas right. niebuhr h richard is he's just he's just looked at from other in, with other traditions other you know post-liberal traditions or whatever yeah and um and and dr bouchard once said uh well we were on a break while we were talking about all this he was like yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, H. Richards' thought is is so much more um, has so much more potential, you know, for stuff. But he's like, but Reinhold really gets my heart racing, and I'm like, yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's right, he does. It's weird. Yeah, <laughs> he gets your heart racing. Um, Somehow yeah. that man. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. How he does it. Weird bald dude. Yeah. Um, all right. That that's the Reinhold Niebuhr hour. Um, Good. thanks everybody. But, uh, so, so Jonathan, I, I, I'm really excited to have you on. I, like I said, I've really enjoyed, uh, uh, the book and I enjoy the dissertation, you know, which, which spring, which makes the book I come forward, you know, just can't believe that someone who's not on my committee has read my dissertation. This is a, <laughs> this is a real win of a day for me. So thank you. I, I, from what I understand, um, academics, uh, love that, you know, like, like when I, <laughs> that's the best way to do it. You know, I read your dissertation. You did. Like, yeah. Like, that's incredible. You read my book. Like, okay. You read my dissertation. <laughs> oh my God. We're BFFs. We're yeah. the best. It's the best. Um, so, so as we think about the catalogate, and remember, for our listeners, the cat, there's a really, really, really good chance that our listeners have never heard about the catalogate, that they're not familiar with the Committee of Southern Churchmen. They're not familiar with this tradition of left-wing Christianity. Um, can you talk for a few minutes about um, what the catalogate is? You can give some historical background if you'd like. But what yeah. when when our listeners first what should be the takeaway, right? Like like if somebody goes, Well, what is the catalogate? What would be the best sort of distillation? Well, the catalogate is this. Can you talk yeah. for a few minutes about that? Absolutely. Uh, if your listeners don't know the catalogate, they are in the same boat with me just a few years ago. I had never encountered them and felt like I had discovered some undiscovered jewel when I ran across both their work and the few religious historians who had written on them. Uh, it was an eye-opener. Um, so the like one sentence distillation of what they're about, they are the primary representatives of like a left-wing white Christianity in the South. You know, like if you're thinking about um, social activism in the church in the south 
your mind is going to go straight to the black church. Uh, the white church is upholding the slave society, uh, the Jim Crow regime, and the de facto segregation and oppression that continues to this day. Where are the, the voices of resistance? Well, here, here they are. They gathered around this backwoods uh, preacher, Will Campbell, and they put together a magazine called Catalagate, which are Catalagate, um, which was not not uh, that nobody ran that name by a marketing professional. I can tell you that. Um, yeah, you said that a little bit in your book, which made me laugh. Mm -hmm. Like, like you're like, this is of course is an awkward and generally bad name. Yes, <laughs> and, I, and I and I'm like, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I don't see any reason to like get around that. But um, it actually so the title of the. Of, of the journal is one of these like defamiliarization strategies that the, the folks who gathered around this magazine, I'll call them the Committee of Southern Churchmen for convenience, because I think that names them as an organization mm -hmm. uh, most conveniently. Um, defamiliarization strategies that they were invested in, in the way that they presented the gospel to fellow Christians in the South. And uh, the kind of tradition that I locate them in, well, there's kind of two, two traditions I'm locating them in in my book. Um, so one is this tradition of, of kind of left-wing Southern Christian descent. And I'll say more about that in a minute, but maybe I'll start with the, the more surprising one and the one that my training as a, as a literature guy lets me see, mm -hmm. which is you know, their inheritance from basically like literary modernism and mm -hmm. the artistic avant-garde of the early 20th century. The first issue of Catalagate is basically a, a little magazine, um, kind of analogous to all the magazines that cropped up on both sides of the Atlantic in the, the interwar ferment of literary modernism with all of these schools like futurism and um, surrealism and, and these, these isms that you might have heard of in a literature or art class. They're doing something really similar to that. They publish a small magazine with a manifesto. Inside the front cover is their statement that they made in February, 1964 um, about what reconciliation meant to them, drawing on uh, Second Corinthians primarily. And that, that functions as a, as a manifesto much like the you know, every, every little artistic sect that cropped up in the early 20th century got together, put out a manifesto, published a magazine, and then like six months later, they were gone, right? But they mm -hmm. left this indelible mark on what we think of as art, on the relationship between art and politics. The, mm -hmm. the manifesto is this incredible genre in which, you know, aesthetic creation and like poetics um, putting, putting together something, a creation in words is connected to politics. So putting together something in the social world. Um, so uh, I see what they're doing as uh, a continuation of that kind of, uh, they're ultimately a kind of literary um, cadre in, in my mind. Um, and, I, and that's why I think publishing and the magazine, Catalagate, like I've noticed in our interchanges, the way the Catalagate has become kind of like synonymous with them, 
Yeah. Right. We're not calling them the committee of Southern churchmen always. Sometimes we just right. call them the catalogate because the, the publishing is, is inextricable from the identity. I mean, um, yeah, so that's, that's maybe like the surprising angle I can bring as a, sure. as a literary scholar. I really like um, that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really I don't know helpful. if you, if, if that lights up anything for you, you had any thoughts? It, it, it does a little bit. It, it's interesting to think of the catalogate as an aesthetics, right? Like, like, like yeah. establishing an aesthetics of white left-wing Christianity. Yeah. Um, uh, presenting it that way actually, I think, makes helps me make sense of my reading of the catalogate as I as I kind of mine through different things, you know. It's it's not a I shouldn't say it's not a scholarly journal. The, these the folks who are writing are scholars and very good and, and all of that. But it's but it's first and foremost, I might say this, maybe the catalogate's first goal is to create an affect yeah. rather than rather necessarily than to communicate content. Um, yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying? Is that is that kind of hit the nail on it? Yes, I think so. Um these, uh, you know, the element of shock, surprise, like, so one of the um, kind of, I don't know, calling cards of literary modernism and the, and the, avant, the artistic avant-gardes is, um, you know, this redefinition of, of art away from beauty and instead mm. in terms of making strange of shock and mm. offense. Uh, and that's one thing that the manifesto does really well like probably the, the most famous uh, literary manifesto along these lines is the, the Vorticist's Blast from uh, I think 1914, 1912, mm. something like that, uh, where they're blasting everything, right? They're, uh, they, they take their inspiration from, you know, it's a kind of aesthetic warfare. They're blowing sure. up our old ideas of art to, to bring something new onto the scene. And I think uh, when you look at the the style that they're invested in, the uh, the catalogate writers are invested in. It's trying to like reclaim the offense of the gospel to yeah. um, the right offense. You know, there's the uh, the failure of the churches that they lament, and then there's the uh, the actual scandal of Christ. That, that Will Campbell summarizes as, uh, you know, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. Right. Um, yeah. That that they they want us to recover and like using using foul language is uh, right. one of one of Will Campbell's strategies, right? Or earthy language, um, uh, something he has in common with like Stanley Harawas, right? Right. Right. Um, but Walker Percy who was my entry into this group as a whole. So I, I got into, I found the Committee of Southern Churchmen and Catalogate through my interest in Walker Percy, the Louisiana Catholic novelist. Um, he has an incredible essay published in Catalogate called Notes for a Novel About the End of the World, hmm. where he says, that you know, being a Christian in the 1960s in America is like running around saying Exxon, Exxon, and everyone has already seen the billboards for Exxon, and so they they don't they don't care. Like it's you might, you're advertising a product that's already reached market saturation, right? Um, so you've got to find these ways of like indirection, um, mm. 
he Percy was fond of, and I think quotes at the end of that essay, Flannery O'Connor's quip that, you know, about why her stories were so violent. Um, for the hard of hearing, you shout. Mm. And for those who have difficulty seeing, you have to draw large and startling figures. Right. Um, so that kind of aesthetics of, of shock mm. and discomfort um, is, I think, maybe it's what draw it's what drew these um people together it wasn't across you know there were catholics and protestants there were black folks and white folks there were men and women who eventually like were a part of catalogate and published in their pages right um and there were different you know political persuasions even hmm. um even though a kind of general leftist of the anarchist stripe right um atmosphere pervaded but i think it's this aesthetic of shock yeah. the offense of the gospel is the thing that they all had in common and what drew them together around this publication that is really helpful jonathan i think that i definitely see it you know as you're describing it my yeah. encounters and experience with it i think you're really describing that and putting words cool. to something that i that that i am um, i i didn't have words for um so before you and I started talking, I reread um, the, the this section of your dissertation. I had to give the book back because I had okay. got it on interlibrary loan. <laughs> yeah, and so and so I was like, fine, you know, and I and I turned it back in, and now I just have uh, your, I just have your your dissertation. But but as I was rereading it to to refamiliarize myself with it, what struck me this time as I re reread it was, uh, and I think it's connected to what you're saying in terms of mm -hmm. shock and inversion and 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 mm -hmm. things like that is you um, really helped uh, draw out in your work um, the connection between um, kind of Campbell and, and the Catalogite's presentation of the gospel as well uh, with the inversion of the Southern story as comedic yeah, rather than yeah. tragic. And that yeah. really struck me in a different way this time. Cool. Um, that, that, but I really liked it because um, – I really did. I, I I thought it was really interesting. Can you speak a little bit more about that, for, so our listeners know what I, the hell I'm talking about? Oh yeah, sure. So, um, you know, one of the one of the I don't know keynotes of the Southern intellectual and literary tradition, at least like Southern white literature, is uh, this concept that you know Southern history is tragic. If you're a Southerner, you bear the burden of Southern history. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's where a kind of politics of white grievance comes from on the one hand. Uh, it can also be a source of, of a kind of like really winsome, like humility on the other hand, in some Southern writers, um, it just depends, you know, it depends on, on where you go with your interpretation of that history. But tragedy is the keynote for someone like Faulkner, um, for someone like uh, John Crow Ransom and the Southern Agrarians uh, who are, uh, Faulkner and the Agrarians are kind of, I don't know, the two maybe pillars of the generation before Catalagate, Walker Percy, but before this kind of uh, civil rights era, you know, Southern literature, they're looking back to as their immediate forebears, Faulkner, the Agrarians, uh, that kind of cohort that came of age in the in the 20s and 30s. 
So this, this group that comes, comes of age in the 50s and 60s has their, uh, there's this kind of Oedipal thing going on with their, their literary forefathers um, are, are that, that cadre that came up in the 1920s and 30s and often went by the name of the Southern Renaissance. Okay. Uh, it was kind of, kind of this catch-all name for them. So the Southern Renaissance is defined by this sensibility of tragedy. Um, you know, the, the defeat of the South in the Civil War, the, the guilty sin of slavery, and yet by naming it tragedy, there's this kind of, well, what the hell can we do about it then? Like, we just have to live with, like, the brokenness of it all is the vibe you get from somebody like Faulkner who does a really good job of like exposing the deep dysfunctions of Southern history and then doesn't give you anything to do about it. Right. It's like you end at lament. It's like if you took those, you know, all those Psalms that are like, where are you God? Right. And then at the end they turn to, but still I will praise you. It's like if you lopped off like the last part of those those right. psalms and you just stayed with lament. It's like if every psalm was Psalm eighty nine or whatever, something like that. 80, Eighty eight, <laughs> uh, which whichever that the one is that ends without a happy end. Right. Um. It's kind of that vibe. Now the um. The the generation of Southern writers around um. And I think this goes beyond Catalagate, and I think it's kind of a sea change in, in white Southern literature as a whole. But um, I think you can see it in a particularly pointed way with, uh, you know, Campbell and his like crass joking way of preaching and with, with Walker Percy and his comedic novels, you know, he, mm-hmm. he always said, um, you know, um, Faulkner's, probably most famous character is uh, Quentin Compson, who, you know, is this, this um, scion of a Southern family who goes off to Harvard and uh, can't, and when the burden of Southern history drives him crazy enough, he takes his own life by drowning himself in the Charles River. Um, uh, Charles Marsh talks about this in the evangelical anxiety, right? Uh, It's, yeah. Um, so Walker Percy always said he wanted to start with a Quentin Compson who lived. Hmm. So what would happen after, if you come to the brink of suicide, if you live through tragedy and you take it as far as it can go, but then you decide, no, I'm going to keep living. So what's the next step that you take? What is the step after the lament for the broken history that constitutes tragedy? Um, and the where and the the next step in that is catalagate. It is to mm. be reconciled. You know, comedy, the plot of comedy back to Shakespeare and and even before, right? What sets the comedies apart from the tragedies is it always ends with a wedding. Um, sure. The lovers are separated, and that creates the tension of the plot, and their separation creates the hijinks. And then at the end of the plot, they're reconciled, they're reunited, and that's sealed with a marriage. Um, so in, in the, the kind of sensibility, that, that sea change of sensibility from tragedy to comedy, you have this move from, okay, we, 
Yes, we're going to lament the brokenness of the past. But we're not just going to like sit with it. We're going to try to do something about it. We're going to try to take the next step and figuring out how to do reconciliation, not to do it in a cheap way, Mm -hmm. not to do it in a way that asks, well, so often that language of racial reconciliation, and and this continues to this this moment, is uh, used in such a way as to ask Black folks to conform to white expectations. Um, Trying to figure out a deeper and more profound sense of reconciliation, I think was kind of the mission of of, uh, the Catalagate group. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, you know, and I, I, as you're talking, it, this this turn to comedy and reconcile, you know, and and the the part reconciliation plays in comedy. Um, I also think it, you write about this as well. Um, it, it it's a it's a sign of the kind of change towards like an anarchist bent as opposed to like a like a socialism bent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right? there's a sense in which in kind of Campbell's anarchy or, or in, in, in the vision in that way that, that you're able to kind of, I'm going to say, um, uh, cut a perpendicular line, you know, through. Yeah. Right. And, I love, and, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have to kind of um, play by the Gra- rules. You don't have right? to gradually. Right, right, right. The, the brick, brick by brick logic of the next step as uh, uh, Norman Mailer put it in armies of the night. The, uh, the old socialist logic of gradualism. Right, right, right. Old exactly. Left. exactly. Yeah, it's, a, it's representative of a shift from the old left to the new left as well, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and maybe this is a good time to talk about that uh, Southern tradition that they, that they come from, because there's a previous iteration of this group. So under Will Campbell's leadership in the 1960s, they're called the Committee of Southern Churchmen. But that's the rebirth, the renaissance of a group called the Fellowship of Southern Churchmen that starts in the 1930s with James Dombrowski, Miles Horton, uh, a lot of folks who were gathered around uh, Highlander Folk School in mm. Tennessee, um, and Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay, we were talking about tragedy. If we're talking about tragedy, right, in, there you go. Uh, yeah, in theological terms, we got to deal with Niebuhr. So Niebuhr is the, the kind of mentor and guiding light for these Southern ministers who formed the Fellowship of Southern Churchmen in the 1930s. Most of them were um, Southern-born Protestant ministers who then went North to get educated. And most of them sure. went to Union Seminary and gotcha. studied with, with Niebuhr. Dombrowski went on to Columbia and did a PhD in philosophy after that uh, and wrote one of the first like kind of histories of Christian socialism in America, um, which is a, a kind of kind of forgotten book um, that is, is really important, I think. Um, but most of them, anyway, they're educated in New York. They're at, you know, they're at Union when, uh, when Bonhoeffer's there, actually. Oh, they're that's like, cool. They're classmates with, bon- they're like in Reinhold Niebuhr's class with Bonhoeffer, um, reading uh, like autobiography of an ex-colored man and like, um, and like Harlem Renaissance poetry with Reinhold Niebuhr, like before there are African-American literature classes wow. in English departments across the country, 
they're reading African-American literature with Reinhold Niebuhr at Union Seminary in his like modern literature and you know moral crisis or whatever class that he's teaching. Sure. Um, so there's a there's a whole like thing there that uh, might be a spinoff project for me. Um, That'd be cool. Yeah, that I, I'd love to look into. Um, so anyway, they're uh, they're influenced by Niebuhr. They decide to launch this fellowship of Southern Christians, of Southern churchmen, excuse me, uh, as a as a socialist um, kind of support group for ministers in the South. Uh, they bring Niebuhr down to to hold their inaugural meeting, and uh, the other kind of important figure here is Buck Keister, who becomes the. Or I, I assume it's Keister, maybe it's Kester. I don't know. Um, who's uh, who's been organizing with the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, and uh, he becomes the first executive secretary of the Fellowship of Southern Churchmen. So his experience with organizing tenant farmers showed him that the New Deal was actually screwing sharecroppers. Mm. Um, and so that's why they get together and they're like, yeah, we don't need the New Deal. That's just patching up capitalism. We need socialism. Right. So they published their own kind of manifesto and they start a journal called Prophetic Religion. Um, so they, the whole thing that happens in the 1960s had, had already happened before in the 30s um, with this group of socialist ministers. But they have that overriding Niburian uh, socialist, tragic, mm. you know, hard-nosed, prophetic religion, realism kind right. of vibe where... Campbell is not a realist by any stretch of the imagination. Campbell is a hardcore idealist. Right. Um, and I think that ide idealistic, um, anarchistic stream of, of, of the left-wing tradition uh, really takes over in the 60s. And it's the big dividing line. And I don't think, you know, you made the connection, but I don't think I explicitly tie that to the tragic versus comic thing no i don't think in, you do either in the mm -hmm. book but that's that's a brilliant insight and i wish that i had thought of it when i was writing it so thank it, you Ethan. it's okay i'm happy to do it i i yeah. i i think that's what really that analysis the the tragic comedic analysis i think yeah. uh, i don't want to say more than anything you've written like not at all but like that just to me that's just something that that i had not I had not thought of, I had not, and, and frankly, it goes very well with, with your insistence on the catalogate being an aesthetics. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, yeah. Be, because that's really what, that's really what it's getting across. And frankly, as I'm, as I'm talking, it also helps me read um, some of the folks who have written for the catalogate in a new light as well. Like yeah. it helps me read not so much Elul. I, I, I don't, I, Elul is always just Elul, but like, yeah. but like it helps me read Stringfellow in a different way too. Like if yeah. I think about Stringfellow as this, as, as being sort of funny. Um, Comic figure. Yeah. 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 And then, then suddenly I think, I think Stringfellow takes on an even deeper register as he, yeah. as he, sees the world in terms of powers and principalities and he sees what it what might it mean to live humanly in the fall that's always been his question yeah. right how do yeah. we live humanly in the midst of the fall well a turn to comedy is really how we live humanly in the midst of the fall yeah we're all a bunch of fuck-ups so like yeah, we might exactly. as well like laugh about it 
Exactly. Right? It's, exactly. That's kind of the the Will Campbell, uh, William Stringfellow vibe there. It's a it's a way of embracing to use a kind of Dorothy Zola inspired phrase the the power the strength of weakness or, or something yeah like exactly that, right yeah. yeah I think that makes sense I I really like that um, I'm gonna transition us just slightly because you, yeah, you, yeah. you 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 used a, a term that you didn't know is one of my uh, trigger words in a good yes. way good. Um, yeah resentment. So yeah. I, ha- I happen to think, um, and I did, and I'm stealing this directly from uh, Charles uh, Matthews. So uh, okay. not, yeah. not Charles Marsh, Charles Matthews. Yes, no, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Charles Matthews uh, a few months back. Yeah. In, in all honesty, he's great. Like he, he's, he's really, really great. He's just, oh yeah, he's wonderful. Crazy. Do you know, I'm sure you know uh, Steve Long, Stephen Long. Uh, I know the name. Oh, at a, at a SMU. Steve. Yeah, 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 so yeah. yeah. I, know, I know his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've become I've become friends with Steve since uh, starting here, and uh, and he I think he invited Chuck down for a oh, okay for an event. So yeah, Chuck yeah. once said in Chuck Matthews once said in a class I took with him my first semester here it was on political theology. Yeah, yeah. He, he said we were just we were reading um, Jeffrey Stout's Democracy and Tradition, which if oh. you've never read, you should. It's a fantastic yes. book. I've been, it's been on my list for months and I, I need to get to it. Yeah, no, it's really, really good. I, I'd highly recommend it. Um, yeah, cool. As we were reading that book, he, one of the things Stout brings up is resentment. Yeah. As a, you know, as an affect among uh, uh, democracy and how it can, resentment can really just fuck up democracy in, in a huge yeah. way. And, and Chuck uh, said to the Christians who are in the class, there might've been two or three of us who are Christians. He, he said, uh, um, some for you guys to think about. I actually, th- he's like, I actually think resentment is the driving force of Christianity in this country. Oh, yeah. And that, and that until the American Christians can let go of resentment, there's really, there's, there's, there's no hope. There's no hope for, uh, for, for Christians being you know, integrated into the democratic system and, and yeah. doing good work. And it's been haunting me since he said that. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Because it's true of us Christian leftists as well. That's I think the you're thing. right. I think you're right. I think you're right. It's um, resentment against my upbringing that drives so much of what I'm doing and, and like recognizing and, and also resentment against um, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, rich liberal christians who don't get it of course um that drives so much of my thinking and like recognizing that in myself i'm going to take us on another tangent have you watched the um do you ever watch uh contrapoints the the youtuber no i don't i don't think i have you know her okay um natalie natalie win is her name um she's a socialist youtuber um philosophy grad school dropout has an, has this amazing channel um she's a queer trans woman and has this incredible like campy aesthetics in the videos she's, she's phenomenal and she put out this video last year she does like these hour two hour long video essays mm. they're just ridiculous uh but some but like you can't look away they're so compelling um she put out this one last year on envy and envy as like oh, wow. a problem in among leftists and like on the left mm. and took a whole lot of shit for it as you can imagine because sure. people thought she was being reactionary and and just you know being a lib right um but 
I watched that in like January or February of this year. Mm-hmm. And it was like a true come to Jesus moment for me wow. where I saw like, like it was like a moment of spiritual growth. Re- the resentment is just right there if I want it, <laughs> sure, you know? Sure. And it's like a drug. It's like you, because it does give you a kind of like endorphin rush to feel yep. this like hatred. Uh, but it's so poisonous, man. It is poisonous. Yeah. When I and, see that, uh, keep going. I'm sorry, John. No, 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 please. I was all I was going to say is I agree that I see it in myself and among left left leaning or progressive Christians. Yeah. And 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 I think what's what's really uh, startling is seeing the way in which resentment is mobilized. You know, it's all it's all in all Christians, as you said, but the way in which the right is able to mobilize resentment Yes. Um, the the mirror, you know, it, 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 it's easy for me to kind of like lean on my identity as a left wing person and go, haha, I'm immune or uh, exactly. that doesn't apply to yeah. me. But my identity as a Christian really shows me, oh, well, hang on a second. It's really not that hard. It's not that hard to mobilize me either. If, if, yeah. if, if right wing Christians can be mobilized, not through right wing activity, but through Christian resentment. Yeah, where where they're mobilized by saying, you know, things like your way of life is under fire. You know, pe- yeah. people people don't like your ideas. People people don't think um, like, like you, you, you have lost the debate on abortion. That's yeah. why we need to be anti-democratic and we need to take it away. You know what I yes. mean? Like, like, yeah. And, and, and yeah. We're able so to let's be, be real in like- that way. When right-wing Christians are are moved by resentment, people fucking die. And when left-wing Christians are moved by resentment, we become like mildly toxic people to be around. (laughs) Sure. So it's there's not a parody, except in the the soul danger. Let's say. Right, right. Which is uh, absolutely. So my point behind all this, I could talk about resentment all the time because I I actually, I actually think that um, this is where somebody like uh, Stringfellow's sort of theology of the powers really, really helps us. You know, and I think as... Campbell must be leaning so hard on that because, all right, so I taught, I finally got to teach my Campbell Sunday school lesson yesterday cool. at my okay, church. Good. And um, and his whole shift, I don't, I don't know how, how much you know about like Will Campbell specifically. Not a ton. Um, so after 1965, he has this whole, so he resigns from the National Council of Churches in 1963 because, well, Lots of reasons. But in 1965, he has this moment where uh, um, one of his friends, the uh, Episcopal seminarian, Jonathan Daniels, is murdered in Alabama, um, shielding another activist, a young Black woman, Ruby Sales, from a shotgun blast from a special deputy named Thomas Coleman. so Will Campbell learns about this. This is kind of the most famous scene in uh, his memoir, Brother to a Dragonfly. He sits, he's just learned about this and he's at his house with his brother and uh, his friend P.D. East, who's like a, a newspaper man in Mississippi, kind of one of these village atheists, mm-hmm. rabble rousing civil rights uh, newspaper, you know, like one of these classic Southern dissenter types. Sure. Um, so PD East has, is the one to whom Will said his famous thing, you know, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. 
So he walks over to grieving Will Campbell and says, which one of those bastards does God love the most? That little dead bastard, Jonathan Daniels, or that living bastard, Thomas Coleman? And Campbell starts crying. Mm -hmm. And then he starts laughing and starts laughing and crying all together as this recognition of that, that he's given himself to what he calls a, a ministry of liberal sophistication, like mm -hmm. dawns on him, that he's been trying to be like the good white guy, the good white Southerner his whole life and like right. align himself with the good people. But, but his people are those who would be called rednecks or poor whites, people like Thomas Coleman, the murderer, mm. who are beloved by God, for whom Jesus died, and who are already reconciled by Christ's work, whether they want to recognize it or not. And so from that moment, like his mission, while still like, totally being an ally of, you know, the struggle for black freedom, his particular calling becomes this ministry to the poor white racist and going to clan members. And as he said in an interview, once emptying the bedpans of their sick and burying their dead mm -hmm. um, and confronting them with the gospel that in other moments they claim to believe. Right. So like, um, this whole thing for him of t taking, taking apart, uh, anti-racism as a kind of like moral purity and duty on behalf of white folks to be, to be good. Right. And instead understanding racism as an economic ideology that pits different sections of the working class against each other. And if we understand it rightly, we will see um, the poor white racists differently, not as just the other, uh, you know, who's the bad guy so that we white liberals can be the good guy, but instead as one who is both sinned against and sinning. Um, right. You know, teaching that story to my, my good, rich, white liberal friends in Sunday school yesterday was like, an occasion for some deep soul searching and like they went with it it was awesome we had a great conversation yeah um and i like i count myself among this number right like i want to be i want to be the good guy i want to be on the right side of history and i want to to set myself against the clear bad guys and campbell just like won't let me do that <laughs> it's a pain isn't it yeah it's a pain that's so how it's, I I, it's I the best weapon against resentment that I that I know. So that that's a that's a that's a powerful story, and yeah. I think that uh, as I as I think about resentment, and as we we wrap up our conversation here shortly, like yeah, as I think about our as I think about resentment and the way in which how you're describing it just now in in your in your story and in your witness, um, and the way in which you write about what's happening with Will Campbell and the Catalogate. I see all of these things swirling together and, and, and working together as a way to combat this stuff. Like if I can, I don't know a ton about Will Campbell, but I do know a ton about Stringfellow who writes yeah. in the Catalogate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, for, for Stringfellow to see the world in terms of 
powers and principalities that victimize and possess human beings. Yes. The, this notion that um, resentment can be a sign of possession. Wow. That it can be a sign that, that the powers of racism or the powers of Christian supremacy or the powers of white supremacy or whatever yeah. have the ability to not only victimize black folks and, and even poor white folks, but, but nefariously have the ability to possess white folks yes. and, and, and force us to feel resentment. Yeah. Um, the catalogate becomes this really fascinating antidote. Yeah. Where, whereas not only, not only in its ability to kind of speak prophetically about what's happening, but in its ability to break that by leaning on these kind of comedic anarchist things, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Like to say something like, you know, part of what makes uh, resentment and tragedy go together well is just how serious it is. I, yes, it's exactly. So serious. It's so, it's so, this is such life and death. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's apocalyptic. It's all of this stuff. And, yeah. But, but what makes Will Campbell from what you're describing so jarring is, is he doesn't talk about, um, you know, he doesn't draw on Niebuhr's giant piece of, theological anthropology to talk about sin he's not he's not drawing upon uh beyond tragedy he's not drawing upon all of these these things he's just saying aren't we just a bunch of fucking bastards yeah and then it exactly. you. then you're like i guess i guess he's like yeah, yeah well that's why we got work to do you know and then yeah, exactly. move on right exactly. like and it's exactly. powerful it, it, it's it's the ability to break all of that you know no our it's not that our way of life is under attack it's not that white people are being replaced it's none of that it's just that yeah. we're bastards yeah. and and um and and starting from there exactly that way being confronted by that aesthetic right like going yeah. back to that that's how we can um break some of those powers yes that 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 cement you know racism and cement supremacy and cement all that in there i think absolutely that's a really powerful I think thing I think the powers want us to take ourselves so seriously. Mm -hmm. I think they draw strength from that. And if you can laugh at yourself, if you can laugh at the devil, you know, to borrow a line from Martin Luther, um, it takes away so many of his weapons. I think that's true. I think that's true. Well, I would say, so by way of wrap up, yeah. As we, you know, as the catalogate becomes more available, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I don't know what the project is doing exactly with the catalogate, if it's going to be available. When I when 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 I first found out about it, Charles Marsh was like, well, do you want to how about I give you some PDFs? We can read it. And I was like, cool. Yeah. And then I just like copied all the PDFs. And I was like, on the off chance I am fired. These are all mine now so that I can I can have them for forever. <laughs> But yeah. like as if for folks who want to like dive into the catalogate who are looking for the catalogate who want to learn more about Will Campbell, want to yeah. learn more about what what things are happening other than of course your book which they should read. The where should they start? Is there is there an issue is there something that comes to mind um, not just a secondary resource but like an issue of the catalogate uh, 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 something they should be looking for? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, and if, if the project is working on digitizing the catalogate and making that available for archival research, I would bless you. I would bless you all. <laughs> and I would be happy to do anything that you might need for help. Just please let me know. I will. Um, Cause I, <laughs> I went to uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and buried myself in the microfilm machine Oh and God. made my made my own PDFs of uh, volume one. And that's that's wow. what I had to do when I was working on my dissertation. And I'm still working with those same old PDFs. So it, it would be awesome if those sure. were available to scholars. Um, okay, where to start with the catalogate? So to my mind, there are um, maybe three pieces from the uh, first issue of the catalogate they should read. Uh, yeah. So there's the the statement of the Committee of Southern Churchmen that's printed right inside the front cover. There's the initial editorial statement by Will Campbell and James Holloway called The Day of Our Birth. That'll mm -hmm. be the first thing in the magazine. And then I believe like the very first signed article is uh, called Southern Churchmen from Fellowship to Committee by James McBride Dabbs. Now we didn't get to talk about Dabbs today. But he's another guy that I have a whole section dedicated to in the book, who I think is a kind of lost American intellectual and a and a, a you know a little civil rights hero, a, a small scale civil rights hero who needs to be remembered. So, sure. um, so all right, so those three from the first issue. Then I think, all right, I haven't read everything, but from that first volume, like the first few years of the Catalogate, I think. And I might be biased because I love Walker Percy so much, but I think the two best essays they published and that are really central to articulating the viewpoint and the mission, and also are just really well written, which Campbell's uh, rambling editorial statements aren't always, <laughs> even though what they say is amazing. Sure. Uh, so Walker Percy has two essays in those first few issues. The first one is called The Failure and the Hope. Okay. Yeah, and then the second one is notes for a novel about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. All right. So just to go over that again, <laughs> the statement, the first editorial statement and from fellowship to committee in the first issue, that'll give you your grounding on like who, who is Catalogate and what are they about? Gotcha. Then if you want to read the two best things they ever published, at least in that, in those first few years, read Walker Percy's two essays and uh, you can find both of those essays, I believe, in, uh, in Percy's published essay collections, um, okay. Message in a Bottle and Signpost in a Strange Land. So. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Jonathan, this has been really, really great. I, I'm electrified and exhilarated to talk with you awesome. and to, to uh, learn more about you and about your work and talk about this really important piece of, of American and Christian history. I, um, I hope, I hope for more work like this in our contemporary situation. Uh, I, I think it, I think there's some will there. Um, and maybe I'll tell you about different things I'm doing um, off when, when, when we sign off. Cause there's some, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to know more. And yeah, I feel like I just uh, read or listened to some Reinhold Niebuhr, you know? Yeah. You got my heart. You got my heart racing. Got my heart racing. No, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, 
I should mention a yes, couple please. more resources. I'm please so I'm sorry to extend this, but um, no, you're fine. And I'll flash them up on screen for you, even though um, other people can't see them. If you want to know more about Will Campbell in particular, there's a, a professor named Richard C. Good at I think he's at Lipscomb University, a political science guy who has edited um, a couple of collections of Campbell's writings, and they include. Uh, the most concise like biography of his life. Uh, these are published by uh, Whip and Stock. So they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're for, uh, he's coming from a theological kind of perspective and it's with a theological publisher. So Crashing the Idols um, by Will Campbell and Richard C. Good. So this, this includes a biography of Campbell and then the full text of his first book, Race and Renewal of the Church. Oh, cool. Is in here. And then uh, there's this edited collection, Writings on Reconciliation and Resistance. Right. So both of those are edited by Richard C. Good, and he's done a great service to all of us who might be interested in Campbell by putting these together. That's awesome. I definitely thank you for that plug. Yeah. Um, this episode was just going to be on the Catalogate, but it'll probably be on the Catalogate and Will Campbell. It's kind of got to be, you know. It's gotta there's, be, yeah. a, there's a letter where when Will Campbell says, Okay, we all know the committee of Southern Churchmen is just me, and then <laughs> some of my friends who write for the magazine. Right. right, like he is the committee of Southern Churchmen in a lot of ways. So, well, that's good. That's that's. I'm glad Will Campbell knows that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but that's really good. Uh, so I don't really actually have a formal sign off because we just frame it the way we do. But once again, Jonathan, thanks again. This has been really great. Yeah, this was so fun, Ethan. Thank you. The Theology Now! Exclamation mark podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology, a Lilly Endowment-funded project at the University of Virginia. It's produced by Ethan Shear, a doctoral research fellow at the project and a PhD student in theology at UVA. The project director is Charles Marsh, professor of religious studies at UVA. The project manager is Jessica Siebert. Your host is traditionally Guy Aiken, postdoctoral research fellow at the podcast. Our guest interviewer and guest host for this episode is me, Ethan Shear. You can find out more about the project on Live Theology and access the project's resources on Theology and the Catalogate at livedtheology.org. Thank you for joining us. Hope you'll join us next time. Take care, everybody.